Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following is from a Zoom session broadcast from Australia on April 3rd, 2021. It's called Hope Free. I invite you to join us for any of the upcoming monthly Zoom sessions, which are held at two different times on the first weekend of each month to accommodate most time zones in the world. that came to me while we were just sitting silently was surrender. We're getting a lot of practice in surrendering, aren't we? Getting really good at it. So I had one the other day that was, (laughs) was instructive in all kinds of ways. I was flying here to Melbourne from my region, what I consider my region over there. It's two two shires, or what you might call counties. And the next shire next to me, Byron Shire, had some cases that erupted. And we haven't had, we've hardly had any cases in this country. So anytime we have any cases, they tend to shut down the state, or they shut down the region, or they make it very difficult to travel out of that state to another state. It's very restrictive. So I was due to be getting on this plane coming from my own shire, which wasn't going to be restricted to come into Melbourne, but the next shire was, the next shire up. People who were coming in from that shire were going to have to get a test and then quarantine until they got the results, which could be a couple of days or so. Not such a bad thing, but anyway. So I'm at the airport And I'm sitting at the airport and I decided to look at the news. And just two hours before my flight, there's reports of a couple of cases in my shire. And I'm about to get on the plane. And what's been happening a lot uh, is people will be on a plane and arrive at their destination within Australia and be told that they actually have to go into proper quarantine of two weeks at your own expense. Like you, from the time you were on the plane to the time you landed, the rules changed because you, you would be considered coming from a red zone as they do it here. So I'm on the plane and I don't know what's going to be happening when I arrive at my destination. I don't know if I'm going to only be in quarantine a little bit or not at all or the more, something more serious, that there was more of an outbreak that was known by the time I got there. So what to do when you're on a plane, <laughs> you're on a plane about to land, you know, at this other place. There's nothing to do but surrender, which is often the case for so many things in our lives. It's just the, it's the way of it now. You know, you make plans. Not only can they be changed last minute, but you also live with the knowing that they can just preemptively be be changed. We live with much more uncertainty about anything that we have been up to, let alone looking into the so called future. I'm talking about just immediate plans. (laughs) 
surrender. I always love when the word sweet is put in front of the word surrender, sweet surrender. And I also make a distinction in my own mind between surrender and resignation. Surrender is not resignation in this way of understanding it. It's, it's bowing to what is. It's, bow, it's, it's giving up the internal struggle against what is. The change of plan, the way that you were looking forward to something, hoping to see someone, hoping something was going to come through in a certain way. The normal things that humans care about and, and think about. We all know that we can't think about those things in the same way anymore. We can't realistically think about them in the same way. We still probably do think about plans and what ifs and someday and all those things. But another thing I've been thinking a lot about and feeling into is we are living much more like people of old lived and also the poor people in the world now. We're living more like they live, lived or live. And there, I feel this camaraderie that I have never actually felt before like a really intense camaraderie that makes me feel, I think, a newer, a newer level of appreciation for how strong of spirit people have had to be historically when life could be taken so much more easily. Just, I've said it many times, just from an infection or childbirth or any number of things easily it was so it was precarious all the time and that's how a lot of people are still living on this earth and i have been feeling into what that what that is and the way that one would have to find simple joys in simpler ways and that would be your sustenance that would be what gave you a sense of peace and a sense of belonging. Because a lot of people who live like that, what their riches are is their community. That's what their wealth is. That's what their security is. We like a lot more independent security. And we've gotten used to having that, getting our own stash and calling our own shots, and we could dream big. But in this surrender and in this way of viewing and in this deep empathy and self unto self with the people who couldn't really make a lot of plans and weren't going to go traipsing all over the world, and see all the great sights and eat all the great food. 
and hear all the great lectures and all the things we got to do and maybe we might get to do, but who knows? They're our tribe now. And the other thing that I noticed the other day on that plane, in that whole circumstance, was nobody was panicking. Nobody was, people were talking on the plane about the circumstance, not knowing what was going to happen when we landed. And then the, the stewardess, at the, after we landed, she said, the medical offers, officers are going to be on the ground to greet you. So that was like, oh, <laughs> we might be taken away. In fact, they weren't, but they weren't even there. Well, at least they didn't stop me. But anyway, there was this sense. I think everyone's kind of been trained to know anything can happen like that, right? There was a surrender. Nobody was moaning about it. It's good training. Letting go. Going with reality. Maybe ratcheting down your dreams for now to more realistic thrills. I was talking to one of my women friends. She's in her 80s. We've been friends for 45 years. <laughs> and she walks with a cane and she's got all kinds of aches and pains. And she's kind of had a chronic disease ever since she spent three years in India in the late 60s, um, she got something that's never been properly diagnosed or treated, despite all these many years of trying to find out. So anyway, now it's there's a lot of um, disability that she's experiencing. And she just casually said, I just try to find gratitude for whatever, for all the beauty in my life and all the joys in my life. I forgot exactly her words, but it was sort of like, you know, there's no payoff at all in going down the route of how hard it is or how much it hurts or how much is taken away. Sweet surrender. We can't help but have preferences. You know, we, we have preferences. And yet, when it's clear your, your preference is not going to prevail, <laughs> There's the moment, there's the moment where you can make it keep hurting or you can make the disappointment calm down. It's fine that disappointment might arise when you don't get what you wanted, you don't get your preference. Oh, you don't have to be in a kind of Pollyannish way trying to find all kinds of silver linings, but at the least, acceptance. And then things get quiet. Things just get quiet. That's part of the sweet surrender. The battle in your head stops. The pictures in your head that are saying, oh, wait a minute, this movie is wrong. The movie in my head is the one that's supposed to play. That battle ceases. As I was preparing for coming to see you today, all of you, 
I was aware of what you were saying about letting go and resilience is letting go. Mm-hmm. And at the same time in the news this morning, uh, there was a, an article about never lose hope. And there was a, a quote by Martin Luther King that was, we must, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Hmm. Hmm. And I wondered if you could say something about this distinction. And they weren't talking about hope in the Pollyanna dreams. Yeah. I think they were talking a bit more about what you were uh, saying, that you don't fold in the the Hmm. face of adversity, but you as you say, moderate your dreams and and accept that and live more positively in that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to come at this concept of hope, actually, and it certainly gets brought up a lot. We're, We're sort of indoctrinated into thinking that we have to have this, this hope. We have to, like, you hear it all the time. You gotta have hope. (laughs) Right. Um, And I do push back from that sometimes because sometimes that's a burden when the idea of hope is connected to future, like some kind of future picture that is going to be better that, that you're hoping for, right? Now, we can't help as humans, we we can't help but have those kinds of inclinations for sure. And, and they're, you know, they're just part of our part of how we're made up. But is it wise in the face of something that is going a certain way, that's going to be just really, really hard. And that you may not prevail in, that whatever your picture of it getting better isn't going to prevail, then in those cases, hope can be just an added burden. I mean, we can see this in um, the personal realm uh, when people face death. So when someone is clutching to some kind of hope about getting through their terminal illness and being able to live, but at some point it might become clear that is not going to be the case, then hope in those moments, that hope about I'm going to do it through sheer will. I mean, maybe for some people it's not really a burden in their heart. They would rather be in that kind of denial all the way to the, to the end. But for, I think, many people, the release, the surrender to the end the surrender to the finality actually is a relief. For many people, I've heard this. I've known people who, who came to that after fighting the fight, after really trying. One of my friends who died of a brain tumor, he, he said to me along the way after it was becoming more and more clear that all the treatments were not going to work, but he was still trying this and that. He'd just gotten married and his wife wanted him to, you know, not give up. But he said to me, 
I'm going to fight for my life, but I'm not going to make an enemy of my death. And I loved that line. So, yeah, you do what you can along the way. You, you show up, you, you go to the marches, you do all the things we do to change things. And, of course, often we're motivated by a, a better vision. But how deeply do we clutch to the vision or to the hope? It's tricky. Yeah, it's a tricky consideration because I'm not suggesting hopelessness. I'm suggesting what my friend Darja Mail calls hope-free. It's a different thing. So you're not even, in a way, engaged in the realm of hope or hopeless. You're not even in, you're not playing in that, in that um, loca. You're just watching the show and helping out where you can. And, that, and that's, a, that's another kind of surrender. I mean, the time we live in, it doesn't really afford us a realistic, happy picture for the future. It would have to be careening in a completely different direction than the one it's careening in. It makes, if one is very attached to the feeling of hope as your sustenance, and you're confronted with information pretty much constantly every day, if you're paying attention to what's happening on the largest stage of the world, you're confronted with a lot of information that is going one direction, really. And if you're if every time you you see one of those bits of information it's crashing into your hope story in a terrible way it's like a a, a constant battering but if you're in a if it, if in fact you're in a position of okay whatever is to be you try your best, you do everything you can. I would even propose that in the condition of hope-free, you have more energy because you're not being battered about by false hope or false comfort or hopelessness. You actually are free of the, the, the war of those polarities. And you see something that needs to be done. You see some way you can help out. And there's just a lot of energy for that. And you do it for its own sake in the time that it needs to be accomplished. Um, yeah, hope, it comes up a lot, you know. It, it's, it, it's this meme that's been this assumption that we should all have it. We should have hope. Can't lose hope. Got to have hope. We've heard this. There's songs. It's, it's ubiquitous in the world. A belief system. And it worked. You know, it was pretty realistic for a long, long, long time. No matter how, how bad things got, I've often thought about this. Like, you know, what if you lived in a time of 
you know, terrible war and mass starvation in your area, droughts and plagues and life was short anyway as well. And something drove them on, no matter how hard it was. I think people could realistically think, well, life will continue somehow. So there would there would be a basis for hope in that regard. But who knows in our time? Thank you. You're welcome. It it really really resonated to me everything you said today both in the beginning about surrendering and also what you were talking about hope because as you know my husband <clears throat> died of that brain tumor like your friend and we had we had a hope the first eight months of his disease we had so much hope and he was yeah. doing everything to eat healthy and we were thinking healthy saying positive affirmations, all that stuff. We did everything we could, and he did, and he did so well. But there came a time, two months before he died, where I could see and he could feel he was not going to make it. He was mm -hmm. going to die from this. Yes. And that, of, of course, was a very difficult time to experience. I didn't want to know it, but I knew it. Yes. So I sort of did recognized and went to the surrender about well I'm, I'm not sure the surrender but anyway I I, I, I saw I faced it yes. and then I saw one of my friends my very close friends one day and I said to her my husband he's going to die it, it's he's not going to I just know it in my heart he's going I must prepare myself to be alone he's not going to make it mm -hmm. and she she had seen him four months earlier where he was doing pretty good Mm -hmm. And she's, then she started the struggle. She said, no, no, you can't give up. It's so important. You keep, you keep your mind set up to it and you have to think positive and you must send that out to him and you must, you must. And I felt bad. And even I had the struggle myself. She also made the struggle even worse on me. Mm -hmm. and, and I've thought about that ever since. Uh, that was, that's bad. And I know I, I probably would have done the same thing to her, but now I'm so wise. I know what it's, it's like you, you have to surrender some time into it. Right. As, and that's, uh, that's, so that's why I, I deeply understand what you're saying about, in a way, I gave up on him because he was going to die. No, I was there for him 120%. I, I just had to give all my hope up and just be the best wife I could, give him love. When someone is in that, in that phase, the last phase, where they are dying, and yeah. perhaps they know best of all that they are dying, those, yeah. those who are awake to the process, right? Yeah. The last thing they need is someone around them pretending it's not happening, so desperate for it not to happen that mm -hmm. the person who's busy dying is now having to take care of this other person with whatever little energy they have in this yeah. sort of pretense. Yeah. It's exhausting. That's yeah. why a lot, of, a lot of times when people are in that point of their lives, 
They only want to be around people who really get it and are not in some kind of resistance. You know, imagine if that's the case for your own self, that you're in a room with someone who's pulling on you to not die and saying you're going to make it when you know you're not. Yeah. You know, I could sense that on my friend. That's that's what she put on me. And it was very heavy because... Thankfully, you didn't put it on your husband. So, you know, and it's and it's very common what she did. And it's very, very common. It's almost like it's you're disallowed from just saying the truth in those circumstances. Yeah. So here's my point about all of this is that we we are getting an exercise in adjustments to reality and realizing that no matter how fervently you want something, there are bigger forces at play yes. on the world stage and personally. So we, we are living in a time where this understanding of sweet surrender, even though we're having to sur- surrender to loss, we're, we are having to surrender to loss a lot. We can also we can also surrender to our little joys, right? To our, our simple joys. When I say simple joys, I mean joy is joy. It, you know, it can be it can be so tiny a thing and yet so so delicious, so wonderful that your heart feels lit up. You feel yeah. lit up in a moment yeah. or in an hour or any number of days really that that's another type of surrender where you surrender to not living your big grand dreams but living the day that you have right yeah. living, the day, living the moments you're actually in hi good morning everyone <laughs> lovely. lovely to see everybody really lovely, lovely. To see you I love this session because it's morning it's morning here in Dublin and yeah. um, and it's a lovely time I think to have this sort of conversation for me you know just in terms of how how I am morning is I love mornings I like early mornings although it's not particularly early it's uh, we start at nine here but um, I really love it you know because it's a time when I suppose I'm waking up to the day and waking up to to a new day um, and lovely to you know to see everybody here and connect in so just want to sort of acknowledge that with gratitude um, and also a little bit of envy this morning Catherine here hearing that you got on a plane and that you're in Melbourne you know <laughs> when when uh, the idea of a plane feels like quite in the distance uh, for us so just acknowledge that but delighted that you got to be where you are and that you're you didn't have to uh, experience quarantine at any level so and that you're well um let, I, me I really... jump in. let me just jump in on that yes we we have had more freedom here than than lots than most places actually we've been very very lucky in that regard and i really propose to all of you find these little joys how however wherever they're there they really are. I have a lot of friends who have been, li- you know, have been living in this country, but for one reason or another, uh, they've been living more or less in lockdown, self-imposed, and and they're just grooving along, you know. 
So it's a lot about, I know it's hard. I know it's restrictive. I get it. But it's a lot about the narrative that's running in your head. You know, you can tell yourself a story about how life used to be or how it could be when you all can do whatever you used to do. You can tell yourself that story and it will make you seem, it'll make, it'll feel very, very locked in like, like you're in solitary confinement. And that's what a lot of people have described this as. But every time you go down that path, it's going to hurt. Just know that. Just like my friend told me today, the one who's in her 80s and who's quite confined due to her own body. And she just says, there's, there's no payoff for me to think about what I cannot do anymore. This is aside from the restrictions. She's in a restricted area. She's in a place in California. But in addition, she's in a physical restriction. And I know you've heard me say this so many times. The surrender has to be in all these kinds of circumstances. These lockdowns and these restrictions may go on for a very long time. They may go on in a kind of rolling chain, you know, like out and in kind of way, as you're seeing in Europe. That may be the case. So I'm emphasizing this sense of surrender because we may have to get used to this for a longer time. Yeah, really it's more of a sharing piece than, mm-hmm. a, than anything uh, else, just which really I think resonates and work, works in with what you were talking about earlier, you know, about, about sweet surrender, in fact, and, and about it not being resignation and bowing too. And yesterday I have, my mother is 90 and she lives 10 minutes from me. So I'm her, her carer in this time. And over the past year, you know, that's been the case. So yes, on Friday, when I spoke with her on the telephone, she, she was very down. And so yesterday I called into her uh, in the afternoon and I said, come on, let's, let's go out for a ride in the car. Um, you know, because in the car she's safe, et cetera, et cetera. So we went for a little drive and we, we have a 5K uh, restriction on at the moment, but luckily we live near the coast. So I took her and I always take her in the car when we go for a ride. I always take her to places where she grew up and that have good memories for her, you know. It's, and so we took the drive and and I, you know, took her along as far out to the coastline as I could and then drive back along the coast, if you know what I mean, um, back towards home again. And it was what, what she said yesterday was lovely because she was noticing there was lots of people out, obviously, and people on bikes and the whole road structure in in Ireland and particularly in Dublin has been changed to facilitate more bikes and there's more bikes that you can rent. And so it's really trying to you know bring down the, the use of cars, more bikes. And so the roads are actually quite constricted now they used to be quite wide they're much narrower to allow for bicycle tracks which is great and she said you know what she said this is just like it used to be when we were 
teenagers and she remembers about when she met my dad and when they, you know, were going out and all of that. And what they would do at that time in the 50s was to meet up on their bikes and go to this place along the coast and gather and just hang out. And this is what's happening at the moment because people can't meet inside. So people are meeting outside and they're using bikes and they're getting, you know, a pizza and sitting there and having their their social time outside. And what happened was for her, it, it connected her again with that because she's she's confined at the moment, obviously, to the house. Uh, and it was just lovely. And it just, you know, when you were talking about living, you know, like people of old, it's like that here. You know, there's a slowing down, even though things are kind of ramping up again. But there's a, obviously, you know, they use the phrase a circuit breaker that COVID has been this massive circuit breaker on the world stage yeah. and, and has slowed up the machine pretty considerably. And um, who knows if the machine will crank up to its former level or be able to maintain that level. And there's a lot of benefit to this slowing down. There's a lot of benefit. And so, yes, I love that you appreciate that and that you that you shared oh, yeah. that with your mother. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and the, the interesting thing, just to finish, was that the, the kind of merging of the touching back into how it used to be and how people adapt, you know, as we're all having to adapt in the surrender, if you like, to what's going on. You know, the stuff that really, I mean, when I walked into this room here this morning, it was filled with sunlight, you know, mm, yes. and because it's Easter weekend, it's just there's a lovely spring feel about it. And I bought mm-hmm. some flowers um the other day and it's all everything is yellow and white here at the moment for easter and it's lovely and i know i know what you said about hope but i also think you know it it, there's there's something nice about hope too in the sense that oh we're into a new season i can see the buds on the trees here as i talk to you and i can see the gorgeous flowers outside and that really gives me a bit of joy in my heart you know simple stuff Yes, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's the easier way to happiness. Sure. It's simple, simple stuff. Yeah. 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 So thank you. We had a lovely chat on the phone and I was talking to you about my dilemma of having to really accept that I won't get back to Italy like I'd planned. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I think it's the not knowing that is hard. Yeah. We always want to know. You want to control. And when you're in a position of just not knowing, you really do just have to surrender. That's right. Yes. I went to a wedding. Go ahead. I went to a wedding and it's a thing now where the bride and groom have the first look. So they want to control the situation so much that they look at each other before the actual ceremony so there's no surprises. And I just thought... Gosh, that's really taking control to limp to the end of the limit. <laughs> I don't quite get it. Had they not been looking at each other <laughs> before getting married? <laughs> um, well, I guess on the day, you know, the groom lays eyes on his bride as she walks down the aisle. But oh. now is a new thing where they meet beforehand so they can see each before other. Before they walk down the aisle. <laughs> okay. In case there was someone wearing a mask and they you know, stand in for the one you thought you were marrying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now uncertainty is, is often so the part that's uncomfortable for us. 
we like to know what's happening. So that's why it's also good to bring your experience of what's happening also down to a tighter little point, which is what's happening right now. Just this next little while is... My mother keeps saying that to me. My mother's 90 and she just will not, she will not entertain anything about the future beyond, I mean, really a few days. She tells me all the time, like her um, stepdaughter is arriving to visit her soon. Thankfully, I'm so happy that she goes there to visit my mother. She can fly there. And I said, are you, you know, are you looking forward to that? And she said, well, like, uh, it'll be nice, but I don't, she said, I don't go beyond tomorrow or the next day in my mind. <laughs> I thought, well, that's cool. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's if you wake up and tell the story like, oh, my gosh, it's been a year since I've been able yeah. to fly. It's been a year. I think that's just, it, it does your head in. Whereas I try and get up and think, right, day one today. Yeah. <laughs> no story. Yeah. No yes. story. Day one. Most, most people in history never flew. <laughs> no. Flying is very recent and not everyone has gotten to do it since it became a thing, right? <laughs> not very many people got to even do it. But we were the privileged. And I've spoken a lot about the disparity between our expectations as the privileged and the reality we find ourselves in, which is much more constrained than it used to be. But if we just keep hammering on that story in our heads, oh, we can't do that anymore, and we can't do that anymore, I'm not be it. maybe we'll never get to do this or that. These are painful thoughts. And, you know, I mean, they might arise, and they may realistically be the case, but to just keep living in that you know, it's like, it's, it's like self-flagellation. And I know your case is pretty interesting because you have, if you don't mind me telling everyone, a love affair that it's not just Italy that you were hoping to get back to. And a love affair, that's a bigger loss to have in Italy. <laughs> that is a, <laughs> that's a first-class kind of missing, of course. But... All you can do is appreciate the life that you're living. I once was having um, lunch with Ram Dass in San Francisco. Long, you know, we were old friends. And I was lamenting. I was in my 30s and I was in a relationship with someone who had two grown kids and did not want any more kids. And I knew that the, the biological clock was ticking down. So I'm, I'm at lunch with Ram Dass and I kind of lament. I say, well... It looks like I'm not going to get to have kids this time around. And he casually said, oh, there's always something we didn't get to do. (laughs) (laughs) And part of me wanted to say, I'm talking about having kids. I'm not talking about, you know, going on a Ferris wheel. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, (laughs) But I loved the answer. I actually really loved it and have laughed about it in my head many, many times since. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Could I say something? Yes, please. Yeah, it was just around the topic of control and surrender of this morning. And I, in the 
past, not that distant, really tried to control my whole spiritual life <laughs> by having very set times for sitting this amount of time, doing a body scan that amount of time, doing a gratitude journal, 10 things in the journal. And at one stage, I looked at my kind of spiritual wellness to-do list and I felt so exhausted <laughs> that I was just trying to, well, I was doing Alexander techniques, so supine. I mean, you know, remember the half-hour walk, fresh air. I felt so exhausted. Mm -hmm. I, I just, in the lockdown, one of the lockdowns this year, I mailed, sent in a box and paid, I don't know, 30 euro or something to send about 50 mindfulness books to a person who had agreed to take them, who had ran a course and knew lots of people interested in those topics because I felt I had such a burden on my bookshelves with these these kind of books to kind of improve things and um, that was just what I wanted to share really I feel I've kind of shared a lot in this lockdown physically because I just was feeling constrained and flattened and smothered by the routines that that's just I, I just wanted to share that I love what you just said <laughs> because one of my uh, favorite topics is letting go of the me project the the aggrandizement of me the wonder of me the presentation of me and it comes in all kinds of versions but the one you're describing is the enhanced spiritual me. And it's almost like a developmental stage that we go through because we try out all the other ways to pump up me or we don't get to try them all out, but we try out enough of them. So um, at a different stage of life, one might be attracted to power or name or a certain group of people that you feel are cool or some ways that you enhance yourself, some kind of study, some kind of talent that you, you know, that you do because you want to be seen in a certain way. It, there's, there's endless versions, right? There's just, it's all the ways that humans want to be recognized and to feel empowered by the sense of who they are. And the, the spiritual version comes along fairly late in the game, usually. It's like when the other ones are falling away. <laughs> Often then there's this turning to, okay, the enlightened me is going to be the best one, the one that's the way coolest. And so one goes on that journey there's a book that was written long ago by Trungpa Rinpoche called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And it's about this very subject. It's about how you finally end up in this kind of materialistic relationship with your own spirituality. You're in a collecting mode. You're collecting. And, and uh, 
enhancing and adding on. But my teacher Punji used to always say, the good news is that won't work either. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point you'll realize, as you have, that's not really working either. And that's where another type of sweet surrender comes in, where you actually do give up the search. And you find yourself relaxing more and more in just your old simple old self, right? Just the old basic ordinary self that is very unadorned actually. And that makes it quite beautiful, really beautiful. Unadorned, no pretense, no presentation. And those are the people we love to be around. Those are the people who actually are living what I consider the highest spiritual life is that they're not trying anything. There's no, there's no striving. There's no effort. They're not efforting in any direction. They don't have what Alan Watts brilliantly called the stink of purity. The stink of purity. They're the true divine rascals, right? Because they understand their own rascality. And they're not proving anything to anybody. They're not trying to prove anything. And weirdly, I mean, it's so ironic that often what people are desperate for is some kind of approval when they're building up the me, when they're on the me project, working hard. <laughs> but ironically, it's when that stops or falls away is a better way to say it that it's very attractive that 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 does get people's attention it's it's very easy to be around someone who's just hanging out right just hanging i often tell a story about when i was a teenager i had a friend who i hung out with and honestly i can't remember anything we talked about because all we did was we just grooved along together. And I've hung out with many people like exactly like that, but I'm just saying this goes all the way back to a long, long time ago. And I, I loved being her, in her company because we were just cruising around. We, there's no, we weren't being any certain way. We were just two teenage girls just being. And I don't remember, I barely remember anything about her story. Like I can vaguely remember that she had a sibling. <laughs> you know, I, just, I just hardly know anything about her story of who she was, but I have a very rich feeling about being with her. And I personally, I love being with people in that kind of context where you're just self unto self, right? Just, just hanging around. That's what these sessions are, you know, we, we can feel that we're just, we're just hanging out here. We don't have to have any practice. We're not having to do anything particular with our minds. You don't have to be in any way different than you are in this beautiful ordinariness. I went to Assisi once and some people who lived near there, uh, 
they, they were friends with a friend that I was traveling with. And they gave us this incredible secret tour of all these places that St. Francis allegedly hung out. But the feeling I had there, that whole place and the ethos of St. Francis and seeing the Franciscan monks who to this day, there's a simplicity even about their robes and about their vibe. It's less adorned. It's, it's fairly unadorned. It's very basic and yet so beautiful, so elegant. And the more I came to know being there, I don't know how historically true it all is, but the the life of St. Francis, the love of nature, the love of the quiet places, the love of the unadorned, of the simple, of the less, truly less is more, and just walking around everywhere. And when you feel into what that is in terms of, what it takes to be that kind of simple, you can't help but be inspired. You can't help but be inspired when you see through that lens. Thank you. Hello, Catherine. Hello, dear. Nice Hi. to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. And what fabulous art you have. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so, well, uh, the, the figures I collect <laughs> oh. from Africa, the paintings I do myself. <laughs> wow. Wow, they're fantastic. I uh, want to talk a little about giving up this ego project you talk about. And um, I think often I'm quite good in, in the sweet surrender, in accepting things like in this lockdown I'm quite good to accept it yeah. I, I feel it but what I also feel when I try to give up the ego is this a huge amount of wishes I have small wishes big wishes the wishes a lot of wishes and I read great spiritual masters like right now Nisargadatta Seeing Miss Agadetta. Very good. Are you reading? I am very good. I'm I'm very impressed. But but I feel at the same time when when he's talking about really going to your real deep self, that you let go the wishes. And I feel, oh, it's gonna be very hard. sometimes, Sometimes sometimes the translations aren't exactly accurate. Are you reading I am that? Is that what you're reading? I am yeah, I am. Okay. Is, yeah. yeah, and uh, and another one. The late, yeah. the latest talks. So. I mean, they're beautiful. They're, they're you know they're beautifully done, and the, those translators were all very wise. But it is still translated, and I think that the the old style of Asian interpretations that a lot of the Western translators took on was a lot more black and white than actually the the original might have been put. So I asked my own teacher one time the question, because he used to say things like, none of this is real. So I asked him the question, what do you mean by that? You know, it's real enough. You know, what yes. do you mean? <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, it's not permanent. 
And he explained to me that the way that they understand permanence was different than how we understand it. Like real and permanent are not synonymous for us, Uh right? Uh But as he explained it, as I understood it at the time, he was kind of conflating those, the, the way that it's often spoken about in spiritual books and teachings over there. So there's a whole thing about this aversion to desire, you're using the word wishes, mm-hmm. you know, and attachments and all of that. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of reframing of those understandings since that time. And I even wonder if the in the original, there was more nuance about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder that, who knows, but the, the conversations since those days with those teachers who we all revere, but it's not realistic that humans would not have desires. We are we are literally biologically programmed, you know, for that. We desire food, for instance, you know, go without food for a day and you will have a white hot desire that you can't help. And we're very complex psychological creatures as well. So another way to see it and to hold it is that, yes, desire arises and it's powerful and yet we can have a relationship to desire such that we are not it's we are not at, at the beck and call it's it's slave a slave yes huh? yes we're not its slave we can pick and choose understanding that every single desire we have and manifest requires mm-hmm. some kind of caretaking energy you know, we start to become a little more circumspect about how much we want to take on with this and that desire. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is, a new car, a new iPhone, a new anything, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, whatever the, the thing is, you start to be aware of the caretaking that will be involved. And you also start to be aware of how much, how much sitting in desire is realistic or appropriate. There's, we're allowed some, right? We're allowed some. But another thing Punjaji once said was, I thought was quite amazing, was if you pay very close attention, you might see that, that the the getting of an object or of an experience that you've been desiring, part of the pleasure of it is the cessation of the desire. Do you understand? Yeah, of course. I, I, <laughs> I experience it very often when I, when I buy some beautiful thing, you know? Yes, yes, and yes. I have it, you know? Yes. It's, it's, it takes not long. I have a new desire for the next yes. one. And and also there's this thing too, that in the desire and in the, in the lead up to the getting of it, there's, there's a lot more kind of juice around the whole thing. There's a lot of juice and then you get it. And perhaps for a while it's, you know, it gives you some pleasure and everything, but then that level of that juice of that looking forward, or if that's going to get like this sense that it's going to give you something, you quickly discover that didn't exactly happen, which yeah. is why you see so many hungry ghosts, if you know that mm. phrase, 
of people who just cannot get filled. They cannot get filled no matter what they get. They have to get more. Well, I am one of them, but Are I know you? it. The, yeah. the, the advantage is I know it. Uh, this mm -hmm. is, I think it's, it's good to know it. Yes. And then it gets, um, it gets uh, another quality, I think. Yes, uh, definitely being aware of it. About this. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And you would know, like you have to dust all that stuff, all those beautiful, beautiful African objects. I think they're African. Yes. They have they take they have caretaking, right? Mm -hmm. You probably have to have insurance for your place. Uh, there's all kinds of things that come with this mm -hmm. fulfillment of the desires. Mm -hmm. But this is what I mean, you know, that I really feel it when it gets less, you get You, you're getting more free. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that. And on the other side, and I think for me, it's a deep question. When, when I hear Nisargadatta, it's a little bit like that. As deeper as you come in to yourself and to the truth, the more life goes away. And it's just, you are just still living. He often says, I'm, I'm already dead. <laughs> so okay, that's <laughs> and um, you know, and I'm afraid a little bit uh, about that. You know, yeah. about, about this aspect. I want to go uh, deeper to my truth and to myself, yeah. but I still want to enjoy life and not get a, a, a more and more distance to life. That I'm saying, you are all living, but I'm somewhere else. You know, this is everything is not important for me anymore. I'm a little bit afraid about this. You know. Well, um, you make a point. You do make a point. Um, <laughs> I sometimes say the Dharma ruins your life <laughs> because, <laughs> because the life that you had in place and all the ways that you experienced life and the things you liked, all of that stuff, it can get thrown up in the air a bit. It can become more like ash in your mouth. But what replaces it is. Um, a lot more peace, mm. a lot more ability to experience nuanced pleasures, very, very, as we're saying, simple joys. You notice all kinds of things, like the twinkle in somebody's eye that you're hanging out with mm. becomes the jewels in your, in your orbit, right? That, it's, things change. It's like it, things get replaced. Your motivations change. Your mm. motivations for art and creativity, it still may be there, but it'll have a different, it'll come from a different motivation. Mm. One of my friends and students from long ago, he's a very celebrated artist in New York City, and he had always had a struggle. He was basically fighting depression and anxiety most of his life. And he came to one of my retreats, a nine-day retreat, mm. and he brought this exact same thing up. He was so concerned that as he was relaxing, he was not going to make great art anymore. Yeah. And I said to him, and also, by the way, he'd been struggling with ulcers and all kinds of uh, physical ailments. And, um, and I said, well, which would you rather have? Your ulcers and your, your sort of dark art or peace? And when I put it to him that way, in those moments, he did say peace. But what was really amazing was that he, he actually went back and did his art same as ever, but he was moving from a different place in himself mm. and a sweeter place. He wasn't painting, you know, flowers when he went back, but, but he, he was coming from a different place. So I guess I would say that 
Yes, there may be losses in terms of a withdrawal from certain types of excitements in your life that no longer excite you, that you find maybe even tedious. Mm-hmm. You may be turning much more to a quieter way of life, mm-hmm. possibly. It's, it's, um, it's happened already. It's happening, yeah. Uh, even aside and, from the lockdown, yeah. And doing so, art is more and more, excuse me, is more and more that I'm watching. Yeah, someone yeah. does art. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, beautiful. That 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 what you just described—that sense of witnessing yourself going through processes and going through your daily life—that can also get very very strong, Mm. which is kind of cool. It's very Mm. free, just a witnessing, a sense of witnessing. Ah, you know, not Mm. a distance, not not like you're disembodied, but just a kind of impersonal relationship to your own self and a more mysterious one. Mm. And it's it's actually very beautiful that way. The main thing is that you get really good at letting go wow. you know, of that which just cannot stick to you any longer. And there's nothing to do but let it go. There's, that's, mm. You're on this Dharma train and, and actually... You can't get off when you once it's got you, you can't get off. You just keep going on it, you know, because you know too much already. And the the madness of the world and the obvious misery in clutching to that which is turning to dust and is ephemeral in every possible way. You, it can't trick you. It can't fool you. It can't, it can't sustain you. Mm-hmm. And that's why it is very interesting to see so many people who hit the top of their game, mm-hmm. whether it's fame or talent or money or power or women or men or whoever, whatever you're into, they play it out mm-hmm. and then they turn to Dharma right? Um, The the lucky ones. That's usually how it goes. One of my girlfriends who's a long-time Dharma teacher once said to me, they all end up with us (laughs) because because there's nowhere else to go. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's a community of people who live in the deeper waters and who who speak about these kinds of things. I I call them deathbed conversations, the things that actually mattered and matter and are the eternities, you know, in a finite world. And you start seeing them and you can't, you can't not see it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Lovely. This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com where you can also book a private phone session and view upcoming events such as our monthly Zoom sessions. We would really appreciate your support of these podcasts. We offer them for free, but they're not free to audio produce with a sound engineer, and we also pay for a strong hosting platform as well as a monthly music subscription. So if you're a regular listener, please consider making either a one-time or a recurring donation. Of course, you're welcome to listen in whether you can afford to donate or not. And if you're enjoying the podcasts, we would be grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Till next time.